You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith because, of course, it is because I'm the only bastard who does this. Thanks for joining me either way. The interview subject I've got coming up for you is Ben Hutchison from Denver, Colorado's own Chemists. I love this band. You'll hear that through the conversation. The reason for the chat is to talk up the doomed heavy metal EP, which is released 17th of April 2020. Definitely check it out. Probably my favourite release of the year thus far. Certainly has my favourite song that has been released this year thus far on it. So by extension, yeah. Why don't I just roll it into one and say it's my favourite release of the year thus far overall. There you go. That works. Now a bit of a heads up. Similar to the conversation with Eric Peterson because both interviews took place one after the other. The audio quality is just shit. Not Ben's. Mine. I couldn't do anything about it. Unfortunately, I've just had gremlins through electronic applications for the last week or so. I've tried to tidy it up, but meh, what can I do? Especially toward the end there, you'll hear it sounds like I'm underwater or something. I'd love to know what the hell's going on with it. Anyway, I think I've fixed it in time to do the introductions and the outros and everything else. So either way, as you've come to expect, hopefully, the quality of the conversation that I try to bring to you all is exemplary. So here he is, Ben from Chemis. Hey, Andy. Mate, no worries. Yeah, mate, you're a popular guy. You should know that. Great band, by the way. <laughs> nice to feel appreciated and wanted, I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, I feel like the prettiest princess at the ball. <laughs> Look, I've got to say that I reckon Chemists and Blood Incantation, and I know you're both from Colorado there, I think that you're two of the most important bands around in 2020 in so far as you've both got your roots in traditional styles of metal yet you're advancing the genre by reinterpreting essential characteristics of the genre and adding brand new elements, you know. Because I had a chat to Morris, it was only last week I had a chat to him, and I'm, I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, from oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know. that. I mean, Denver's not that big of a city, so everybody knows everybody, you know. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, well, Morris, great guy. I had a chat to him, and I was truly hoping that I'd have an opportunity to chat to yourself or Phil due to the release of Doomed Heavy Metal. I had a chat to Phil a couple of years back uh, uh, when the last album was released. Now, okay, I, I would say that a conversation with Death is my favourite cut of the year so far. Uh, I'm, I'm, wow, thank you so much. Yeah, look, I'm a fan of Appalachian folk music, and I love what you guys have done with this one here. You don't do anything by half measures at all with this band, and that's what I love about you guys. So, mate, I guess this is the first question for you. Why did you decide to do some covers of Lloyd Lloyd Chandler and also Dio? Um, yeah, it seems kind of like an unlikely pairing. And I think for a lot of bands, it would be a little bit stranger. Um, but the whole release is it, it's really based around the idea of our gratitude you know, towards not just our fans, but heavy metal fans in general. It's kind of a love letter to music and to what music means for us. Um, and... You know, truthfully, the inspiration for structuring this release the way that we did, you know, half uh, rare studio cuts, having some covers and stuff, and then half live tracks comes from ZZ Top's Fandango, mm -hmm. which seems to surprise a lot of people. Um, but great album that yeah. it, it's a great album, you know, and it's it's um, a little bit left of center in their catalog as well, where, you know, it stands out as being this um, perhaps seemingly incongruous pairing of two sides. And yet I think that's really endearing. I think it's a really cool glimpse into the heart of a band when they sort of go off the beaten path, even if it is going off of their own beaten path. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, even though we are a heavy metal band, we all listen to so much more stuff. Um, the power of heavy metal uh, is is compelling, but is the kind of power that we find in lots of different kinds of music. So the decision to cover something like, uh, an, well, not even cover, really, to reinterpret an Appalachian folk song um, really doesn't seem that uh, sort of far afield for us mm -hmm. because it's just another facet of what makes the four of us into the group that we are. Hmm. Well, look, I had a feeling that... I love what you're saying there about Fandango. It's an album that I grew up with, actually. My father wasn't into music at all, I must say, but that's one of the albums that he had. So it's really interesting to me that you say that because it's an album that I know quite well. But it's actually a formative album as far as I can see, as far as, far as I'm concerned for me. as if, I'm a musician too, but as also yeah. an appreciator of music. And on that note, mate, if you're tuning into music like that, I have a feeling you guys are going to be around for the long haul. You're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. So what do you what do you enjoy about creating music with Phil and the lads then? Because I feel as though you guys do have a really a, a great connection with each other. We really do, and it's something that I think all four of us are keenly aware of, and that we um, know is special, and that we try to never take for granted. Um, you know, we we knew we were onto something the first time that Phil and I got together um, to jam. Uh, you know, Chemist was sort of coming together. But we knew we needed a singer, and uh, Phil and I got together with the jam. We set up a couple of uh, full stacks, and we got a case of Coors Banquet beer, and we we just hit it off uh, musically the same way that we had personally. I, Phil's one of the first people I met when I moved to Colorado in 2012, and even though we listen to um, a lot of the same music, we come from very different sets of influences in terms of you know what we've played up until this band mm. and that's true for for zach and dan as well and yet that sort of venn diagram of influences the the places where we overlap really were the starting places but the longer that we're together the more comfortable we all are bringing in you know s more seemingly disparate influences bringing in riffs that you know sound like they could be on an autopsy record or bringing in <laughs> songs that are structured uh, in ways like maybe uh, something from the Peaceville Three, um, or you know, nice. interjecting Iron Maiden style harmonies in the middle of um, you know a black metal riff mm -hmm. that we because we know that when we put it through the meat grinder, it's going to come out sounding like Chemists, and, and we have enough confidence in ourselves as players and in the four of us collectively to know that nobody's going to bring in you know ideas that they don't. Uh, already believe in sure. and that if it's something that grabs the rest of us that we find compelling that we're going to find a way to make it into something that we think is cool and that you know thus far has translated for other people as being compelling and cool as well mm -hmm. very articulate yeah awesome and and i love something you said earlier there you're talking about heavy metal as actually i'm going to ask this question now i'm going to make this point now actually i won't go off into another tangent because you are a very interesting band for another reason yourself and phil are both academics and i love that about you guys because i did read your profile on the university of colorado's website that you're a doctor of philosophy in sociology and in 2009 yes. you completed a white paper what we call a white paper here of course because i'm at uni myself actually with this okay th with this thesis moshing and thrashing and headbanging gender, genre, and authenticity in the extreme metal subculture. Now, I've been saying for many years, and I've said it at uni, that 
for heavy metal to legitimise in the eyes of many in the so-called mainstream, we actually need more people like yourself, me, uh, Phil. That needs to happen. There needs to be more There needs to be more dissertations and things like that because at the moment, and I did a quick search of this last night as I was getting ready for our interview this morning, you know, hip-hop and even bloody Beyonce has theses and dissertations and white papers done on them. And I feel like as though heavy metal is being ignored by the academic institutions around the world. But so how do you thread your deep connection with heavy metal into your academic work? I mean, those two institutions, if you will, the, the music industry and the academy have been integral to almost every decision that I've made, almost every waking moment of my life for you know so long that I can barely remember a time when that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, heavy metal has always spoken to me in a particular kind of way that I think transcends the boundaries of just the sort of tropes of the music. That I've never been uh, real big on moshing. I mean, I've done my fair share of it, but you know, I'm not getting any younger. Um, I've uh, my partying days are behind me, but the community aspect of heavy metal and the mm. fact that at you know 35 I am still dedicated to this world that I am a professional musician that that you know music is how I pay most of my bills at this point um, is something that I know is not only unique in music generally speaking in 2020 but also in heavy metal. Uh, but really does come from that sense of community and that sense of community support. Because I think that the way that fans feel about heavy metal is unique uh, in comparison to almost every other kind of music. I'm not saying that, obviously, Beyonce has her, as I think they put it, the beehive. Um, but because a lot of popular music, uh, although it does serve an important role in our society, a lot of popular music is aimed specifically at younger people, um, and there tends to be a sort of ephemeral quality to it that the big hit today is something that will seem old and outdated in a week. Um, I think that heavy metal has in many ways, um, and I think this is also true of a lot of hip hop as well, punk, uh, non-mainstream country, that there is a, an emphasis on authenticity that for every quote-unquote pop metal band that are made up and look cute on the cover of a magazine, there are dozens if not hundreds of bands who have been striving to find the notes that sound like the songs that they hear in their heads and their hearts. And I think heavy metal fans have a unique ability to sort of tell when people are faking it, tell when people are phoning it in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that has always been really powerful to me, that's informed... Uh, how I create art, it is informed how I think about the world. And so the idea of conducting academic research on heavy metal as an insider, as a person who's you know been doing this since he was a kid and will do this until my arms and legs literally will not allow me to do it anymore, um, I think there's so much that is unique and worth knowing about the world of heavy metal. But at the same time, I think there's so much that goes on in our music world that is not dissimilar from so many other parts of human existence. And that by sharing both sides of those stories, we not only make heavy metal seem less like the boogeyman, but I think we also help ourselves and help other people get a little better handle on, on the world and our place in the world and the importance of community and the importance of authenticity and the importance of honesty. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I'm not going to go so far as to say that my work single-handedly does any of that, but those are things that I believe are important, and those are things that I try to accomplish when I pick up a guitar or when I'm writing my dissertation or you know any of those sorts of things. Mm. Why do you think there's... I mean, you really are. I, I did a search on this. There's yourself and there's a, a guy from Thailand who did a white paper at the University of Newcastle here in Australia. You're the only two that I can find that are really, are truly deep diving into this aspect of heavy metals. Do, do you have any thoughts as to why it's been ignored by the academic community? Yeah. I mean, first I'll say there are some people that have done some really fantastic work. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, Keith Con Harris is um, a British sociologist and lifelong heavy metal fan. I think he used to write for Metal Maniacs in the 90s, uh, but and I do not remember where he did his PhD, but he has a book called Extreme Metal, and it is a very good, very theory-heavy um, discussion of uh, the extreme metal underground um, sort of global collection of scenes uh, and how that has changed as a result of and and sort of changed in response to um globalization um the sort of shift from production style capitalism to information and service-based economies um and you know there's some people that have done some interesting stuff on on race and gender but at the same time i think that heavy metal well, I, I'll say this anecdotally. I, I don't know that this is the only answer. But in my experience, I've found that in order to get people in the academy to listen whenever you want to talk about metal, you can't lead with, my work is on heavy metal. Um, sure. You have to yeah. lead with, um, you know, perhaps the, the body of theory that you use or tie it to uh, some other uh, more sort of accessible uh, writer or thinker. And I think that is... A reflection of the attitudes about heavy metal more broadly that yeah. even though the idea of metal might seem mundane to more people than ever before it still scares the hell out of a lot of uh, perhaps well-meaning you know parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and that every time something bad happens in the world it is still easier to point to a Marilyn Manson record or, you know, or in, in some cases, you know, Cannibal Corpse or Morbid Angel or whoever, uh, than it is to talk about social structure and the structure of the home life and the importance of, um, you know, economic privilege or the lack thereof and the importance of access to mental health care. Um, it's easier to construct heavy metal as a boogeyman than it is to actually fix the things that are wrong with society. Mm. It's like the whole drug and alcohol debate, isn't it? And I think Russell Brand was the one that said it best even though I'm not a big, massive Russell Brand fan, I must say, but he said people think that alcohol's a gateway drug to marijuana, which is a gateway drug to heavier things like ice or methamphetamine. But what it is, it's emotional abuse and trauma. These are the the gateways to these things. And if you're not looking at the, the root cause of these things, you're only looking at the outcome. And then, for example, I was reading the other night about Judas Priest's travails through the uh, early 90s there, the late 80s, with uh, Better better By You, Better Than Me. I can't remember the name of the song now. I'm not a, not a huge Priest fan. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and how the legal system and the prosecutors, of course, through that process, tried to pin these two kids' deaths, suicides. So one was a, both, both were attempted suicide. One was successful. One died three years later from his injuries but they tried to pin that on the band rather than looking at what was actually going on in 
these kids' lives. Now, I know that was, God, it's almost 30. Is that 30 years ago now? That's incredible. God. Yeah. My God. Right. I'm, look, I'm 41, and I've been, I was in high school by that stage. So that's, that's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, and it's something that i I got to say, oh, I'm a family man. I don't look like a metalhead at all. It's not that I've been in corporate life for many, many years, but I've, I've, apart from a couple of years where I was just so busy with work where I just tuned out of all music, not just heavy metal, heavy metal's been like a, a, a true north for me, a compass, you know. In mm-hmm. so far as whenever I wanted to feel like me, I could listen to the music and I could identify parts of myself with it. And I'll make a broader point here is that my feelings are that hip-hop and urban music are looked at as more culturally relevant than heavy metal by mainstream media, mainly looking at CNN and CNNBC, this sort of thing. And that simply isn't the case. So we talked a lot about um, the work that you've done and you've known some other academics there, but what other work or what other conversations can be had? I know it's a broad question, but you're a smart guy, so here goes. What other types of work can be produced to convince the Pitchforks and the Rolling Stones and the New York Opinion Formers that heavy metal is a vital and rich genre of music that has given a lot to civilization? I think that's a really good question, and I have two answers that go in very different directions. My first thought is I don't think that should be the goal. I don't think that doing academic research or creating art about any particular part of the world should be done simply to try to convince other people that it's worth doing. Because if it's worth doing that work in the first place, then it is valid. And I don't know that getting more people on board would necessarily have any sort of real world implications that would matter. Um, I mean, in many ways, heavy metal's thriving more than it has in a long time. We've seen that uh, as opposed to the decrease in physical units for most other kinds of music, physical units for heavy metal are selling better than they have in a long time. Vinyl in particular is enjoying a resurgence. Um, and I, you know, I think a little bit of the success, uh, you know, if you want to call that success, it may be a, a little bit of that shift, I'll say, comes from the fact that people in the world of heavy metal know that best case scenario, you know, a lot of people won't get it and won't care. And that worst case scenario, a lot of people will continue to look down on what they they listen to or create, the world that they're part of, and yet they do it anyway. Um, I think that there's something special that the underground in particular offers. Um, Really, when we think about everyone's first experiences with heavy metal, and this is perhaps true for you, it's true for a lot of people. You think about going to those early shows, you think about you know finding bands, especially once you are in a position to find bands on your own. And there's a sense of accomplishment and a sense of discovering something that's special that not everyone knows about. It's like you know the secret that not everyone else does and not everyone else wants to know. And I, I don't know that I would want to try to change that facet of the underground simply for the sake of a talking head on some media outlet saying that, you know, what I've chosen to do with my life is valid. Cause look, I'm doing it either way. I mean, I had to struggle with these decisions about being a musician as opposed to being an academic and the decision to stop teaching. And I don't know that that would have been any easier if people broadly speaking liked heavy metal more the concerns that I had when making those kinds of choices were much more practical. You know, can I pay my bills? What do I do about health insurance? So forth and so on. Yeah. 
At the same time, I do think it's important that people doing any kind of research um, not be beholden to whatever sort of mainstream paradigm exists about quote-unquote appropriate places to study. Now, I mean, there's a, a good way to do science and a bad way to do science. And we should always be doing the most, you know, rigorously scientific research, no matter what we're doing. If we're interviewing people or if we are conducting biochemical research, science is science and we have to play by the rules to produce knowledge that's worth producing. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the academy, there can be, and in I think in some branches of, of sociology, at least there has been more acceptance because of researchers, maybe like myself, um, but especially researchers who have gotten farther along in their careers and just said, look, I don't care if you think that metal is dumb. This is how it matters. And look at this book that I just wrote. And I think in a lot of important ways that has provided enough validity that it's not like everybody's going to run out and study the importance of whatever second wave black metal and you know its relationship to the Norwegian economy. And that's fine. But I think at the same time, there's a pretty broad sense that good research can get done there and on those topics, and that at least sometimes advisors and department chairs uh, you know, are open-minded enough to, to be on board with that and let cool research happen instead of trying to just do whatever is the sort of flavor of the month research-wise. Mm. Mate, there's so much. I'm going to have to listen back to this and sort of go back over it again. You can definitely tell you're you're a lecturer by the amount of detail, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Thank you. and how, and how on point you are with, with what you're saying. You know, look, I'm going to go there and ask this question because I, I've really I've been waiting for someone for a couple of years to ask this question of because it's something that not being uh, living in the United States as I don't I don't have my finger on the pulse in the environment that way. I can only read what I read through various articles on the web, but and. I'm planning on releasing this as a podcast too, so if you don't want to answer it, please don't. Okay, so here we go. How much do you think of the driver behind the mainstream media's ignorance of heavy metal is motivated by race? Now, what I'm talking about here is when bands like some of my favourite bands, I came through with Living Colour, 24-7 Spice, Fishbone. That, they're probably my, my, that's my home ground, those bands. And I've spoken to those guys too, by the way. The guys at Living Colour I've spoken to about this sort of thing, but... How, uh -huh. much, how much do you think the mainstream media's ignorance of heavy metal is driven by race, i.e. heavy metal is white people's music, urban music is black music, and in this political environment, we will only be focusing on urban music? I, I think it's actually has much more to do with class. Um, because there has been a, a shift in the music industry that allowed for the commoditization of hip-hop in a way that, at least thus far, has not been possible with heavy metal in terms of sort of redefining the aesthetic and, you know, disconnecting it from a working class uh, set of practices. I mean, rap and hip hop started, you know, um, as a kind of protest music among people of color um, and had this immense uh, power. It was a way for marginalized people to speak out against their oppressors. It was a way for them to build community. Um, and through a, a number of different processes and a number of different forces, um, this sort of pop version of hip hop has been able to exist. And I think sort of analogous to country music, like there is a way to take a lot of kinds of music, polish it up, take the rough edges off and sell it 
as a commercial product. And in country music, there's been this kind of discussion about what's real country music. And although I'm not as familiar with hip hop as I am with country or certainly heavy metal, um, as I understand it, that same conversation exists. You know, um, what do we how do we draw the lines between what is, quote unquote, real and what is not? And I think that to whatever extent that that has happened in heavy metal, I mean, there's certainly some metal that has permeated the mainstream consciousness. Metallica comes to mind. Mm. Um, Metallica's kind of, I mean, I guess maybe some uh, like new metal in the 90s, probably to an sure. extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I, I think that for a lot of reasons, it's been harder to um, sort of shave those edges off and present a product that is appealing to the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, I mean, you think about the sort of mass production of hair metal bands in the late 80s, early 90s. So many bands that sounded exactly the same and like it puttered out pretty quickly, uh, due in no small part to you know the grunge movement sort of pushing back against that. Um, but heavy metal's roots are inherently working class and you know maybe lower middle class. But the story of the formative bands, you know, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Mm -hmm. these are all people that grew up in small working class towns with very little upward mobility and, uh, you know, found not only a community, but a sense of release, uh, a sense of power through creating this music. So I think you have that. And then you have the historical, I'm sorry, historical construction of heavy metal Uh, as a folk devil you know anytime anything bad happens they can point to it um and to be fair the same kind of demonization has continued uh with hip-hop i mean if you you know watched the sort of mainstream news there's all sorts of conversations about representation of of gender and sexuality in hip-hop and but but for all of those reasons together i think that heavy metal has um you know not not really had that experience And I think that important to all of this is there's never been a sort of emphasis within the music on, uh, quote unquote, making it, at least outside of the cases that I mentioned, like the the hair metal bands, the excess of those bands, you know, who were all about partying and and getting wild. But Mm -hmm. the idea of I'm going to play heavy metal and get a bunch of fancy clothes and drive a fancy car for whatever reason, has never really taken hold. Um, And I think this goes back to that idea of authenticity, that we like the idea of musicians doing what they do because they need to do it, not because they're looking for a get-rich-quick scheme. And if they happen to do well financially, that's fine, but they need to have these sort of artistic um, motivations that are, at least in our minds, purer than purely capitalist uh, intentions. Mm. Mate, great answer. Uh, you know, I've got to jump on a call now to Eric Peterson of Testament. It's It's been a great one too. Unfortunately, I want to keep this conversation going, as you can imagine, mate. So, mate, I will offer that. If we're, if we're available for sort of an hour's time or so, I'd love to continue, but no obligation whatsoever. And, uh, and uh, look, if not, mate, if you're happy with everything we've spoken about, I'll just release it as a podcast episode because this is, this is one of my favourite conversations actually so far. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, we should absolutely circle back to this sometime and chat again. I really enjoyed this conversation, my friend. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and look, I really hope to see you guys down here, mate, whenever this bloody COVID-19 thing sort of restrictions lift. Uh, 
no, no insensitivity intended to people who suffer from the bloody thing, but mate, as soon as civilization can get back on the uh, get back onto the track that we were kind of on before, hopefully we've improved and had some time to self reflect. But hopefully we see you guys down. Hopefully so, yeah. <laughs> got got my fingers crossed. All right, my friend, take care, have a good one, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely, thanks, brother. Talk to you. Catch you. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject is Ben Hutchison from Denver, Colorado's own. Chemist, thanks for listening.